those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks. I'm the main teaching pastor here itself. I'm going to keep going with our Joseph series. Today I want to talk about pride and humility in the Joseph uh, story. Some phenomenal stuff that we can learn from Joseph. And at the end of this message, you're just going to see just the beauty of Joseph's heart in humility and godliness. And again, not that Joseph is superhuman. It's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. And that's, I want you to remember that through this whole message as we're talking about this. I want you to remember, we're looking at characteristics that we want to have in our life, to be humble instead of proud. Um, but the thing you have to remember is, Joseph didn't do this by his own human effort. We become like this because God is like this, and we need God's Spirit to do it. And so throughout this message, I want you to remember, through this entire message, that Joseph was, was the way he was because he was filled with the Spirit of God. And that's what, really what this comes down to. And uh, what I'm looking at then is character traits that will drive us deeper into the Spirit of God. All right? So let's pray, and then... Uh, uh, we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this story. I thank you for your word, which is, it's fresh and it's new every day and every weekend. Lord, it's amazing. We've all heard this. Most of us here have heard this Joseph story many, 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 many times in our lives, and yet your word is alive. Any other story, Father, any other movie, you watch it once, you hear it twice, and, and it's done. But Lord, your word is fresh. Every morning, every week, it is fresh, and your spirit brings it alive, and I just pray today that you would feed us on your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to start in verse uh, 39, Genesis 39, verses 5 and 6, which we actually covered last week, but I didn't have time to talk about a, a couple of things in there that are going to start us off on our talk today. So we're going to go back there. And, and so we, we pick up here, Joseph is in Potiphar's house. From the time that he, that's Potiphar, made him Joseph, overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So again, we looked at this two weeks ago in the whole message on faithfulness. And uh, just, again, amazing story. And I just want to, but I'm going to tie this in right away to where we're going today. But I just, again, want to emphasize uh, something here. But we see in this, in this story, again, it's an incredible story of faithfulness. Joseph gets sold into slavery. He doesn't give up on life. He doesn't get bitter. He doesn't get mad at Potiphar. He just says, okay, God, you're going to make me a slave. I'm going to be the best slave that this world has ever seen. And then they, you know, later they throw him into prison. He says, I'm going to be the best prisoner. We're going to look at that one later in this message today when we get into Genesis 40. But, but um, I'm going to be the best prisoner I can be. And so that's faithfulness, okay? And that faithfulness, as we saw two weeks ago, hugely important. If God's ever going to use you, you're going to have to pass the test of faithfulness because everything in your life is a test, and it's a test to see if you're faithful. And if you pass the test, then God can, can use you, okay? And of, and of course, God uses even evil people for his purposes, but we don't want to be used in that way, right? So if you want to be used by God with God, God's approval, then faithfulness is a key, key test. And we looked at that, right? So, but now I want to, you to notice something that I did not have time to get to two weeks ago, and that is, I want you to notice the cause of Joseph's success, okay? I want you to notice in this passage, it's very clear, it's throughout this chapter, I can show you a bunch of other verses, and we will cover some of those in this, in this message, um, but I want you to notice the cause of Joseph's success. Yes, Joseph was faithful, hugely important, massively important, and he worked hard, and he was wholehearted, and no doubt he was cheerful, and he was all these things as we looked at two weeks ago. He was faithful. But I want you to notice in this passage that the passage does not say that they, Joseph was successful because of Joseph's faithfulness. Yes, it was important. Again, faithfulness is hugely important because it's the test of whether or not God can use you. But what I want you to notice in this passage is that as important as faithfulness is as a test of your character, can God use you or not, it's not the thing that brought Joseph success. The passage does not say Joseph was successful and blessed because he was so smart and because he was so hardworking and because he was so faithful and because he had so much integrity. In fact, throughout this passage and not just in these verses, throughout these chapters, and you'll notice this, I, I hope some of you actually go back and in your devotions read through the Joseph story while we're doing this series, but you'll notice that over and over and over again, the emphasis is the Lord blessed Joseph. The success came from God. It's not because of Joseph. And it's not just said once or twice, it's said over and over and over again. The Holy Spirit was, was really determined that when we read the Joseph story, we were not going to give Joseph the credit for Joseph's success. 
Nowhere in the entire story do we, do we see, yes, throughout the story we see Joseph is faithful, and yes, that faithfulness is hugely important. It's hugely important because otherwise God can't use you. It's a character thing, massively important. But nowhere in the story are we ever once given the idea that Joseph's success was a result of his faithfulness. And it's very important to the, to, uh, the author, to Moses, when he wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I think there's a bunch of reasons why this is important, but I want to just give you two. I want to just give you two. First one is, first reason why this is important that we understand that as important as faithfulness is for character and stuff, that we don't draw the connection between faithfulness and success and blessing. And I think the first reason why that, that the Holy Spirit wanted to make sure that we got that point is because he didn't want us making a formula. The Holy Spirit does not want us making a formula out of the Joseph story that if you're faithful just like Joseph, you'll rise to the top and be successful just like him. Because in the Joseph story, that's what we see, right? He, he gets sold into slavery. He has all these highs and lows in this story, right? Crazy highs, crazy lows. Okay? He's the favored son. He gets sold into slavery. That's a crazy low. Okay? Then he rises to the top and just becomes, you know, this amazingly successful servant in Potiphar's house. That's a high. Then he gets sold. Then he gets, you know, wrongfully accused. He's in prison. That's a low. Then he becomes head of the prison. That's a high. All right? Okay? And so then he gets forgotten in prison. That's a low. And then Pharaoh. It's just highs and lows. This guy had highs and lows. But the Holy Spirit wanted to make sure that we did not turn this story into a formula that if you're, if you're just faithful like Joseph, if you just do your best like Joseph, then, hey, you get sold into slavery, you're going to rise to the top just like Joseph did. Okay? You can't turn it into a formula because there is no formula. Success is from God. Joseph's success didn't come from his faithfulness. It came from God. And the fact of the matter is, and that's why I wanted to point this out, because often, sometimes these stories get turned into formulas like that. And the fact of the matter is, yes, it's true. If you are faithful and hardworking and have integrity and all sorts of stuff, you'll be better off than if you were lazy and bitter. No question. And, I'll just, and just so you don't hear me wrong here, God doesn't bless lazy, bitter people. Okay? So I'm not saying here that, you know, all of Joseph's hard work was, you know, for nothing. It's true, hard work, to work hard, to be faithful, is better in terms of success than to be, than to be lazy or anything like that. There's no question about it. But in the story, what we see here is that the success comes from God, not Joseph's hard work. And I could show you many, many people who are faithful like Joseph, but who never attained success like Joseph did. It's not a formula. If you're really faithful, you're going to be really successful. It's not a formula. I could show you a bunch of hog farmers in this church who were really faithful. They worked hard. They were good with their money. They had integrity in their work. And when the, all the markets and the stuff does this stuff and the, and the hog prices crashed, they went belly up. I could, show you, I could show you many, many people all over North America, you know, start up business people. They tried to start up a restaurant, or they started, tried to start, they had some great invention, or they had some great idea for a business, and the idea was great, and they worked hard, and they were faithful, and they loved God, and the thing still went belly up. I could show you millions of laborers in the world right now, millions, who work often, in many cases, seven days a week, and they're faithful. They work their butts off. They work so hard, they have integrity, and they never make more than just enough to just barely stay alive. So I bring this up because faithfulness does not equal success. Faithfulness is so important. It's our part, but it's not important because of the success side. It's important as the character side, as the can you walk with God and can God use you side. Our, our job is to be faithful, as we talked about two weeks ago, massively important. But don't equate faithfulness with success in this lifetime necessarily. All right? Very, very important. And there's a second reason why this is important. And by the way, I could go, we could go into all kinds of verses. First Chronicles 29, verse 12, and many others absolutely affirm this truth that success and power and might and wealth are all in God's hands to give. Joseph isn't successful because of Joseph. Joseph was successful because God decided you're going to be successful. Okay, and this is just a huge affront to our, to our pride, is it not? It's a huge affront uh, to our pride, because we just naturally as human beings want to take credit for our success. But the Bible tells us that success, 
power, might, wealth, all these things, prosperity. These are in God's hands, and he gives them to some, and he doesn't give them to others, and you can have faithful people on both sides. Now, of course, then the first thing that comes into our minds is, well, that's not fair, right? I mean, that's not fair. I mean, what we'd like to believe is lazy people are not successful and hardworking people are successful, or are not successful, however I said it there, but you know what I meant, right? Okay, so lazy people not, and hardworking people are, and so what we like to think is that the people who are successful are successful because they earned it. And it's just the most natural thing, because we want to take the credit. And so we think when we hear this truth, it's an affront to us. Joseph was successful because he worked so hard. That's why he was successful. That's what we want to feel. And the Bible will not, let us, uh, will not let us take that from this story. Joseph was not successful because he worked hard. He was successful because God blessed him. And yes, of course, hard work is an important thing, and it's a part of that. And again, you'll be better off if you're hardworking than if you're lazy. But we go, that's not fair. It's not fair that God would have two faithful people here, and one he chooses to give success to, and one he doesn't want to give success to. That's not fair. To which I ask you the question, this. Was it fair when Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Was that fair? See, I want to deal with the that's not fair question. We Christians come up with that a lot. It's not just on the success thing, but this is just one place where it does come up. That's not fair, God. How come one is successful, one is not? How come one suffers, one does not? That's not fair. And the that's not fair question always has to come back to the biggest that's not fair question, and that is this. Was it fair when Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Was it fair? I mean, the only sinless person who ever lived, he came to earth because he loves you. All he did when he was here was heal people and deliver people and set people free and only ever did good. And then he got tortured and killed, not for his sins, but for yours. And the question is, was that fair? No. See, forgiveness isn't fair. Forgiveness isn't fair. The last thing you and me should ever want is for God to be fair. Because if God was fair to us, if, if you really want God to be fair, if that's your big thing in life is, I want God to be fair. I'm tired of all the unfairness in the world. If your biggest desire is for God to be fair to you, then what you want is for God to keep a track of every gossiping, slanderous, hurtful word you've ever said and every impure, lustful thought you've ever thought and every selfish act you've ever done and every lie you've ever told and every dishonest thing, cheating thing you've ever done. That's what you want. If you want God to be fair, you want him to jot every single one of these, those things down and then hold you to just account. That's fair. See, the last thing, the last thing in the world we Christians should want is for God to be fair. That's the last of the list. See, our hope is actually built in the fact that God isn't fair to us. And he did the most unfair thing in all of history when he killed his son so that you and me could have hope to live for all of eternity with a resurrected body with him in heaven. So now, keeping that in mind... If then, in this short little lifetime, after giving us all of that, forgiveness, hope for the future, promises of a resurrection, promises of heaven, promises of all this, after giving us all of that, if during this short little lifetime, if he decides that some of us are going to be not successful, and some of us are going to be successful, and some of us are going to suffer, and some of us are not going to suffer, in light of all he's already given us, if he lets us suffer or fail, for his good purposes a little bit in this short lifetime, don't you think he's still being more than fair to us? He's a good God. But all success, and the Bible is very, very clear about this. The Bible is so clear about this. All success comes from God, and that is an affront to our pride because, again, like I said before, the most natural thing in the world is to take credit for where we're at, unless we're not doing well. Then it's everybody else's fault, right? That's what we do. When we're not doing well, it's because of the economy, it's because of so-and-so, it's because I got ripped off. When I'm doing well, it's because I'm smart. And we never, and the thing is, some of you are going, oh, that's not me. Because you never go into the mirror. None of us is that obvious. 
None of us goes into the mirror and just says, I'm just amazing. <laughs> At least I hope not. If you are that bad, then you need to see some people here on staff, okay? But, but what, it does, what it comes as is it's this good feeling that swells up inside of us. As we look back over our lives and we think, we look at the, at the business we've built or the money we've accumulated or all the houses we've sold, all the kids we've taught, whatever it is, whatever it is that we count our success by, and we look back over that and this feeling just kind of swells up in us. What common sense I have. What wisdom. What, what leadership ability. How good is that? And if anyone ever had reason to feel like that, it was Joseph. I mean, he was right at the bottom. He's the ultimate rags to riches story, isn't he? I mean, he gets sold into slavery, absolute bottom of the barrel, goes to the top. Gets thrown into prison, goes to the top. Okay? Ends up second in command of all of Egypt. If anyone ever had a chance to look back over their life and go, wow, I'm pretty good, it would have been Joseph. To have that feeling swell up. Look how successful I am in life. Look how good I am in leadership and business and all this sort of stuff. If anybody ever had an excuse to think it, it was Joseph, and yet the Bible will not give us that. It won't give it to us. The Bible will not let us go into this story and make a formula that Joseph was successful because of what Joseph did. Joseph was not successful because of what Joseph did. Joseph was successful because of God. The Lord blessed. The Lord did it. And the blessing of the Lord, and you'll see this throughout the story. And again, Joseph's character was so important, but it was important as a test of faithfulness for can God use you and what's your reward going to be at the end of your life. But in terms of success in this life, what we have to do, what we have to learn to do and take this to heart from Scripture is as we look over the successes in our life, a feeling of awe and gratitude must take hold and take root in our hearts that we realize all of it is from Him. That's what godliness looks like. You don't look back over your life and go, whoa, ho, woo, I'm amazing. You look back over your life and you go, I'm so undeserving. Wow. And you see that every good and perfect, that's what it says, James 1:17. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. All of the good things in your life, and it come to you because you're so amazing. Okay? They came to you because of God. Every good and perfect gift. Now I want to show you the opposite of Joseph. Because sometimes it's nice to just see an opposite. Right? You see how it is, one. You see how it is in an opposite. It kind of just brings the whole thing into light. So I want to show you character in Scripture. And we're going to jump out of Genesis for just a moment here. I want to show you character in Scripture who is absolutely the opposite of Joseph. And that's Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? Joseph, you go through his story, and it's God, 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 God. Nebuchadnezzar looks back over his life, and it's me, 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 me. Daniel 4, I'm going to read you eight verses here. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, one of the most powerful and successful men who ever lived. Let's look at what happened to him. He uh, dealt with his success in a very different way. Starting in verse 29 of Daniel 4, at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and he said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Look at how different this is from the Joseph story. So he goes up, and by the way, and don't, now again, we always read these things after the fact, and we go, oh, that Nebuchadnezzar was so evil. What he's doing here is what all of us have done many times in our lives. No question. He just goes up and looks back over his achievements, right? And that good feeling swells up. Look at me. And, I mean, from a human perspective, he did do it. From a human perspective, I mean, it's incredible. Under Nebuchadnezzar's reign, we know I mean, many incredible buildings were built. He, the way he organized the country, and, and they were so efficient, they were so wise, the way they, the army, the everything, that country, under, from a human perspective, under his leadership, just went to unbelievable levels of success and glory during Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So, again, here's a guy from a human perspective. He's got a right to do this. I mean, he really worked hard. I mean, he... He could have taught, you know, great leadership conferences because he would have had great leadership ability. And so he looks over what he's done and he goes, he just has this real good feeling, look what I've done. And don't, don't think, you know, 
oh, that's just Nebuchadnezzar. We all love to bask in the glow of our accomplishments. Well, let's keep going, and let's see what God thinks of this. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time, the seven years, shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Okay? Now we're going to read the next couple of verses in just a moment, but I want to stop there. That is, that, I mean, that, that is an incredible statement there from God to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar wants to bask a little bit in the glow. Oh, man, the stuff I've done. The stuff I've done. There's no sense of gratitude here that, wow, God has blessed me. Wow, look what God has done in my life. See, and, and I do want to just differentiate this here because I don't want to over-spiritualize this. It's not that you can never feel. It's not that all sense of satisfaction in an accomplishment is evil. That's not what I'm talking about here. It's not that you can never enjoy the feeling of a job well done. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. You can enjoy that feeling of a job well done and a sense of accomplishment within this greater sense of gratitude that it's all from God. Do you see? It, I'm not against that. that the, I'm not, not saying that you can never feel good about anything you've ever accomplished. No, not that at all. But the point is that you feel good about what's been done underneath this greater overarching sense of God's goodness to you. It's all within a context of gratitude and humility, which so often we are lacking, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is totally lacking it here, and he just thinks, wow, look at all this stuff I've done. This is so amazing. And God says, Nebuchadnezzar, you need a lesson. Yeah, from your perspective, you did all this, because it all happened during your reign, and you worked so hard, and you felt like it was your idea and all sort of stuff, but where did those ideas come from? Who gave you the health to get up every morning and do it? Who gave you the brain to figure it out? Who raised you up and put you in that position of leadership? I mean, if you look back over your life, Nebuchadnezzar, there are a thousand different places where this could have happened, or this could have happened, or this could have happened, this could have happened, and you wouldn't have become king. Who put all those things in a place to put you there and gave you the brain you have and gave you the health and gave you the thoughts? Who gave it all to you? So now I'm going to teach you a lesson that you are not the one that did these things. The Most High rules over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomever he will. Amen. And so the next verse, verse, 34, verse uh, 33, and immediately, I want you to see the sovereignty of God here, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So Nebuchadnezzar thinks you know, thinks all of his success is due to him. All God has to do is snap his fingers and old Nebi loses his marbles, right? Isn't that true? And this is, but by the way, this is not just a story in Daniel, really cool what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Think about how your whole life hangs on the thread of a decision by God. He could snap his fingers today and you're so smart and that brain he gave you stops working. He could snap his fingers today, and you're in the hospital. Anything could happen. It's all from him. So he snaps his fingers, and immediately Nebuchadnezzar is out in a field, naked. His nails are growing. He's got, you know, hair crazy. Wow. And he goes from the most powerful man to crazy man, just like that. Why? God's proving a point. It was all from him to begin with. He's proving a point to Nebuchadnezzar and everybody else. It's all from me. I snap my fingers, you have it. I snap my fingers, you don't. It's not from you. So we pick it up in verse 34. Now, at the end of the days, now, I love, God's going to prove his ultimate sovereignty over all these things going both ways. He's going to prove, I don't, I don't just have the power to make you lose it. I have the power to put you back. And so at the end of the days, at the end of the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. Now, I want you to notice here, his reason returns to him. It's not, he doesn't all of a sudden figure it out for himself. I want you to notice how much you and I are in the hands of God. Your success is all completely, 100% in the hands of God. Yes, you have to make choices of faithfulness in there. I'm, again, I'm not getting away from that. This is not that you don't have a choice. Certainly, you have a choice. And certainly if you're lazy, you can, you can forfeit the things that God wants to do and all sorts of things. But within that choice that you and I need to make, it's all in the hands of God. And so at the end of seven years, it's not that Nebuchadnezzar goes, you know what, I finally figured out God's in control. He isn't even good enough to do that. 
Rather, he's still crazy, and God puts his reason back in. And he goes, oh. So even that part is from God. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. The glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and my splendor returned to me. He didn't earn it. It's back. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. All things come from God. And so we finished the passage, the last verse there, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Now Nebuchadnezzar found out the hard way that everything's from God. Okay, he found out the hard way. None of us I hope none of us has to be driven out into, you know, anywhere in Steinbeck. And if you do, just please go to another town. But be driven out into the fields of Steinbeck or wherever and be naked for seven years and crazy, okay? That's finding out the hard way that it's all from God. But the story's for all of us, and Joseph shows it as well. The Lord blessed Joseph. It wasn't Joseph. Joseph wasn't successful because of Joseph. He was successful because of God. And yes, Joseph had his choices to be faithful in there. We talked about that two weeks ago, and the faithfulness is hugely important. But Joseph recognized this in all things, both his successes and his disappointments. Now, in this series so far, we've talked a lot about Joseph's disappointments, that he had a lot of disappointments in life, huge disappointments. And that's, that's very true. And we've talked about how Joseph was faithful to God in those disappointments, Okay. But we also see here in this story, and that's why I wanted to come back to these verses in Genesis 39 today, because, because sometimes if we just focus on the disappointments, we actually miss something. Joseph was also faithful to God in his successes. And here's the thing I know. Sometimes it's success that derails people, not the disappointment. Like if we looked at, you know, over the, the ages of history, people who were derailed by bitterness and different things, yeah, we'd find a whole bunch of Christians that were derailed, as we've talked about in this series, by disappointment. But I bet you we would find just as many Christians who were derailed by a totally different thing, and that is success. And so you've got Christians who are derailed by, by disappointments. They get bitter, they give up, and they don't remain faithful in the disappointment. Joseph was faithful in both. He was faithful on the tops, he was faithful on the bottoms, and the key was he recognized God was in control of both. When he was at the bottom, he didn't get disappointed, or he didn't get bitter, because he realized this is from God too. And when he was at the top, he didn't get derailed because he didn't let it go to his head. He didn't go, look at me. He realized that's from God. And it was God blessing me that brought this. And he was faithful to God at both. And success, I think, is often just as dangerous to Christians as disappointment. And that's the thing about pride, right? It's pride. And pride is a sneaky sin. Pride is a sneaky sin. You know, people who have pride don't think they have a problem. I mean, that's why they're proud, right? Okay? And I'm not talking, and by the way, and now I talk about people who are proud. And I want everybody just pull out your right index finger right now. Can you do that for me? Okay? Okay, because I'm talking about people who are proud, and all of us subconsciously, even me when I'm preaching it, we think about everybody else here. I just want you to point at yourself, okay? Okay, people who are proud, that's me. That's us, okay? When you're proud, you don't think you have a problem, right? If you thought you had problems, you wouldn't be proud. You'd be broken. So we go through life. Pride, that's the thing about pride. It's a sneaky sin. It is the sneakiest of sins, because what we do is we look at ourselves and we go, well, I'm not looking at porn. I'm not sleeping with somebody else's wife. I'm not, but, 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 but. we go through all the, the ones that we, that we see in everybody else. And you go, well, I'm doing pretty good. And the thing, that's the thing. And pride, and here's the thing about pride. The Bible says God opposes the proud. It actually says that uh, three times. There's three, oh, good, he's got up there. It says that in those three verses there, it says it in different words in many other places. You know what's interesting to me about that, God opposes the proud? You won't find that statement for any other sin in the Bible. You ever notice that? You go through the Bible, you go Genesis to Revelation, you won't find God opposes the lustful. You won't find God opposes the adulterers. You won't find God opposes the drunkards. Yes, he hates all those sins. You'll find much judgment. And we talk about that. I'm not, you know, those sins are not a big deal. They're a huge deal, Okay. But you won't find God opposes the liars. You won't find God opposes. There's only one thing you'll find that stated like this. God opposes the proud. 
Why is that? Because we know he hates the other sins. We know there's judgment and there's consequences for those other sins. Huge. But why does the Bible focus in on God opposes the proud? I'll tell you why. Because he can, if you can have any of those other sins, and you can be broken. You can want to change. You can be, I mean, not everybody who's lustful wants to change. So, so often pride attaches itself to one of these, other, to one of these things, right? Okay? And you, can, and you can be an adulterer, you can be a liar, and you cannot want to change. You can have pride attached to it. But you could be lustful, you could be a liar, you could have these problems, and you could want to change, and you're broken inside, and you wish that Jesus would help you be, be that he would fill you with a spirit of holiness, and you'd love to be more like him, and you're broken like that, and he can work with any of those other sins. If you're just broken, he can work with you. But the moment you have pride, he can't work with you because you don't think you need him. And so the Bible is hugely clear. The Bible doesn't say God opposes the lustful. Some lustful people he opposes because they're proud and they don't want to change. But there are some lustful people who are broken and they want to change and he's not against them. He's working with them. God only opposes the proud. Hugely, hugely important. And we see that in this story, okay? And that's why pride, as I said before, is such a sneaky sin. It can dress itself up as the best-looking Christian. Pride can dress itself up. You can come to church all the time. You can read your Bible regularly. You can dress real nice at church. You can do all these things. You can say all the right words. You can be involved. You can do all that sort of stuff. And you can actually, it's possible, be on the opposite side to God, and God is actually against you because you don't, in your heart, think you need him. You think you have it all together. God opposes the proud, okay? And again, pride touches all of us at some points in our life, for sure. It's a disease that infects all of humankind. And so you say, whoa, because what I don't want to have happen now is just kind of a mass panic. Oh, we're all proud. God's opposed to all of us. Well, again, it's a disease. It certainly touches all of us, okay? But now what I want to show you in the Joseph story is I want to show you, because then the question is, well, am I proud? Am I not proud? I don't want you going home and freaking out, am I proud? Am I not proud? I want to show you what a humble life looks like in Joseph, okay? I want to show you a couple of points, and I mean, we could go probably a whole massive series on humility, but I want to show you two more things. We've already looked at one thing, right? One, one, one sign that you're not proud, I mean, again, pride will touch all of us to some extent, but one sign that you're, you're actually walking generally in a broken, humble way that God's not against you is that you actually look back over your life with a sense of gratitude and dependency on God that every good thing in your life is from Him. You don't, you're not taking all the credit, okay? That's one sign. I want to look at two more things from the story of Joseph. And we're going to go to Genesis 40 for this. And uh, I want to show you two more things. The opposite of pride. I want to show you what's the opposite of pride. All right? So Genesis 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And again, this is a famous story, right? And so we're jumping ahead to Genesis 40 just so you know. I, I am going to come back. Like I said, our message series is kind of getting broken up here. But in September when I'm back, I, I, I want, we're going to talk, I want to have a message on Potiphar's wife. Okay, I've been looking forward to doing a message on Potiphar's wife. But we're just going to leave that now, Genesis 40, all right? So, and now we're at the famous cupbearer and baker part of the story, all right? So, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And uh, Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. Okay, and the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended uh, to them. Okay, and so I just want you to know, uh, first thing, to just stop there. Captain of the guard, so you get these two important political prisoners, okay? And uh, so you got the cupbearer, the baker, straight from Pharaoh. He's upset at them for something. Now, here's the thing about political prisoners, right? In a system like that, you got to be careful with them, because Pharaoh, he's angry with them one day, but he might pull them back the next day, and we're going to see that in this story. I mean, the one guy he kills, but the one guy goes back to working for him. So when two guys like this get thrown in prison, uh, you want to be careful with them because you're not sure which way the wind's going to blow in a week or two or a month, right? And you don't want to be, you know, abusing these guys in prison, and next thing you know, they're going to be up and be your boss again. So you got to be careful with political prisoners. Now, the interesting thing is, what's the first thing they do? They put these guys in prison, and they give them to Joseph to take care of. Now, how many prisons do you know of where they put the prisoner, they would take one prisoner and put him in charge of the other prisoners, okay? That does not sound to me. Now, I'm not an expert in, you know, penal stuff. Uh, 
I was looking for another word there, but, you know, I'm not an expert in the prison system. I don't know how to run a prison. I've never done it. I'm pretty sure, though, you pick a guy out of the prison, you put him in charge of all the other prisoners, that is not a good idea, okay? But Joseph's in charge, and they, they put him in charge, and then they give him these two guys who you would be like, you'd want to be real careful with these guys, and they give him, these guys, to Joseph, okay? It's, it's incredible, all right? And then it says, and this is what I want you to see there, and he attended to them. Okay, so they trust Joseph enough that they're going to just give him the care of these prisoners. They're going to put him in charge of them. And then it says he attended to them. Like he, he's waiting on them. He's serving them. He's taking care of their needs. Like, like, what's going on with you guys? How can I help you all sort of stuff? And again, I just go, again, I've never been in prison. But I'm thinking, like I'm trying to put myself in that mindset. So now I'm in prison and I could be there for life and they bring in other prisoners in. And, and, but Joseph's heart is to serve these guys. He's attending on them. He's waiting on them, okay? And again, this is not some, you know, enlightened modern prison with cable TV and golf and all that sort of stuff, okay? This is a dungeon, okay? I want to, again, Psalm 105, I just want to show you this because you have to just think about what Joseph's in and what he's doing here. Psalm 105, God sent a man ahead of them. We looked at this a couple weeks ago too. Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron, okay? So this is not an enlightened prison. This is a terrible place. He's in a terrible place himself in a prison being abused. He shouldn't be there. He shouldn't even be in Egypt. He's been betrayed by his family. He's been betrayed by Potiphar's wife. He's just, and he's in a bad place himself. Now you bring in other prisoners. I mean, this guy should be a broken man, and instead he is serving them. How can I help you? He's attending to them, making sure that they're okay. And again, you have to realize here that he has authority over all the prisoners. And you're saying, well, you're making too big of a deal of this. He had authority over the prisoners. Okay, let's jump back. I want Genesis 39. I want to show you Joseph was actually in charge of the prisoners. Now think, you put one prisoner in charge of a bunch of other prisoners. Now you have a recipe for abuse. I mean, that's a recipe for you're going to serve me, not I'm going to serve you. Okay, but I want you to see Joseph. I want you to see the authority Joseph had in that prison. Genesis 39, 22 to 23. And the keeper of the prison, put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Uh, have you ever heard about that? So the keeper just says, you're in charge of all the other prisoners. You can do whatever you want. And then white washes his hands, locks the door, and goes out and about his business. Again, this is a recipe. You give someone power like this, this is a recipe for what would you do if you had that kind of power? Okay, I know what I would use it to. I wouldn't use that kind of power to attend on others. I would use that kind of power to have them attending on me. That's our natural human bent, right? Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And again, notice who gets the credit for his success. Joseph is faithful, but the success is from God. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Okay? So here's Joseph. He's in a terrible place himself. He's in an Egyptian dungeon, terrible prison. His feet have been hurt with fetters. His, his neck has been hurt with a collar of iron, okay? And, but now at some point in the prison sentence, he gets put in charge of all the other prisoners, okay? So he has authority over the other prisoners. Now these other prisoners come in, and we find him serving. So he's the guy in charge. He's the one attending on them. And it's right here. If you would just dwell, if we would all just dwell on this for just a moment, the beauty of Joseph's character here and the beauty of his heart is stunning. It's stunning. He's the one in charge. He's the one with the authority, but he's the one attending to the prisoners. He doesn't use his authority. He doesn't use his position to, get pe to, to serve himself. He uses his position. He uses his leadership. He uses his authority to serve as an excuse to help him serve others. And he's waiting on them and attending to them. And so this is actually one sign. You want to know. You don't have to go home and be freaking out. Am I proud? Is God opposing me? Am I not? Here's, here's just what you have to look over your life and do. And look. Do you put others first by serving their best interests rather than your own? And by the way, this is a totally different mindset as to why God's given you success. What I'm talking about here, it's not even something, I mean, I struggled with this in this message even, even in my own life. This is such a radical, diff radically different way at looking as why God gave you success. Because remember, your success isn't from you. It's from God. 
Why did God give you that success? Why did he raise you to the position you're in? I'll tell you why he did it. So you could serve others. That's not how we approach our success, though, is it? I mean, we all know that technically. I'm not, te- I'm not teaching you anything revolutionary here like, whoa, I never heard this before. Most of you have been coming to church most of your life, and you know it's all about serving. Christianity is about serving. We've got to be like Jesus. We've got to serve others. And then we approach our lives with the bent of, my success is for me. I'm successful because of me and for me. I'm a successful business person. I'm a successful salesperson. I'm a successful this. I'm a successful that. And I use my time and my energy and my success, which I earn by my hard work and my good brains, and I use that on me to advance myself further, to make myself more comfortable, to make myself more wealthy, and we use it, we think it's from us, and we think it's for us. And what we read in the Joseph story is, it's not from you, it's from God. And it's not for you, it's for others. Joseph becomes successful in the prison. He doesn't use that to get an easier life of it in the prison. He uses it to say, now I can really attend on you guys. How can I help you? How can I make your life in this prison a little better? How can I make your life a little easier, a little better? And I want you to notice how Joseph serves both his superiors and his subordinates. Right throughout his whole life, he gets sold to Potiphar. Potiphar's his master. What does he do? His one goal in life is I'm going to make his life easier. I'm going to make his life better. That's his goal for his superiors. I'll make his life easier. I'm going to make his life better. And we read, as we read a few weeks ago, that Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything except what to eat. And then he goes into prison. And his superior is the keeper of the jail. And what's his whole life? I'm going to make your job easier. I'm going to make your job better. And the keeper can give him charge of the whole prison and walk away and do something else. Okay? But he doesn't just do that for his superior. So that's amazing right there. That's amazing. What, what, a, what an outlook on life. I'm going, my superior, I'm going to serve him to make his life better and make his life easier. And then you put him in leadership and he flips around, and he, de- he doesn't expect them to do that same thing for him. He does it for his superiors, but he doesn't expect the people underneath him to do the same to him. He turns around and does it to them too. I'm going to attend to you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to make your life better. I'm going to make your life easier. But I'm here to put your interests first. Both his superiors and his subordinates. And again, I look at my life. I look at our lives as we generally live it. This is such a radical shift. This is like not... You know, you listen to this one message and, oh, your life is radically changed. This is like the Holy Spirit has to take this truth and somehow drive it so deep into our hearts and fill us with this Holy Spirit that it actually just, it is literally a revolution to think this way because we do not, cannot think this way as naturally as human beings. It just goes against everything that's in us. And it says applications to every area of life in your family, at your job, even here at church. I mean, Joseph shows us how to do it at, you know, in different workplaces and in jail and all sort of stuff. This has applications to your family. It's a totally different way of looking at life. Okay, let's, let's just talk about church here for just a moment. I just want to bring it because, again, we've talked a lot about work. We've talked a lot about your boss, all sort of stuff. And sometimes it just takes a job. You just have to use a different example to bring this into the rest of life, to just see that this is everything how we're supposed to live. And so let's just talk about church because maybe we, we don't think about that necessarily with the, with the Joseph story, but Joseph did superiors. He did it with subordinates. Okay? What do we think about our church here? God has given us a leader, Pastor Ray. Right? I mean, I, we wouldn't be here if we didn't think God had given us a leader. Okay? So he gives us a leader. You know what that means if you're here today? And I'm not talking to new people and you're just passing through or whatever. But if you're a member here, you serve here, you're part of this church, you've come here for a while. You know what that means? Part of your life, I mean, part of our life is we have a spiritual leader, Pastor Ray. We have other ones here too. Maybe you're involved in youth. You have a youth leader, cell leader, whatever. We've got different ones. But part of your desire then, when you pray and as you live and when you come to church, part of your desire literally is that you want Pastor Ray's job here at the church because God gave him that job. You want his job because of you to be a little easier and a little better. And you say, oh, well, that's easy for you to say. You're on staff. Of course, you talk about that at church. He's your dad. You're sucking up to him. He's probably going to give you something after the service. No, he had no idea I was going to say this. <laughs> oh, let me just show you a verse, okay? Yeah, Chris just made this up. Okay, let me, let me show you some Hebrews. I'm going to jump to Hebrews. And Ken, I'm going to come back to those other points. But just give me Hebrews for a second here. And I could show you a bunch of others. By the way, I could show you at least six others. But let's just do Hebrews. Obey your leaders and submit to them. He's speaking about the church. 
okay? So this is for your blessing. This is God's word. I'm not telling you my idea. I'm telling you how to live a life that God doesn't oppose. How to live a life where God, like Joseph, just finally at the end of it says, I can't help but use this person because they are, wow, that heart. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So that's his responsibility. Um, most of us, we don't want that responsibility. That's his responsibility. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And I could go to a bunch of others. Part of your job, that's what Joseph shows us. Any superior. So it could be a boss, could be your mom and dad at home, you're here in the church, Pastor Ray or, or a youth leader, wherever you're serving. Part of your desire, it just comes out of you everywhere you go. He's like, God put me here. God put me here. God gave me this position. God gave me this stuff. I've got to make that leader's job easier. I've got to make that leader's job better. And Joseph took care of things. He took care of Potiphar so much. Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything except what he had to eat. Joseph took care of that keeper of the jail so much, he didn't have to worry about anything in the prison. And that's what we are to do with our leaders in all, in all areas of our life. And we need to let the Holy Spirit speak to us. As I'm preaching here today, as we worship after, as we go home and speak to us and say, Lord, because this is not how Christians act. I'll tell you that right now. You go to most churches in North America today, they all love the story of Joseph. Oh yeah, preach it, brother. Let's talk about Joseph. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> oh, we love Joseph. None of us wants to live like him. You go into churches, what do they want to do with their pastors? They want to make it harder. I'm not saying you guys. You guys are like perfect. I'm just hoping this goes on the internet and other churches watch it, Okay. They want to make their pastor's job harder. I know better. Don't let him make that decision. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's trying to take advantage of us, blah, 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 blah. And they want to make it harder. They want to make it easier. Joseph had an absolute opposite thing. Well, and it's not just our leaders. It's, it's the people all around us. It's our subordinates. It's our co-workers. It's our co-members in the church. We need a radically different mindset for when we approach church. We come to church here in North America and it's get, get, get. Joseph gets sold into slavery and he just serves Potiphar his best. He gets put into prison, he just serves. He gets put in charge of all of Egypt and what does he want to do? He wants to serve. But we come to church week after week and it's all about get, get, get. Me, me, me. That's how we approach church here in North America. And I know that because whenever people leave the church, you ask them why and it's always about me. Why are you upset with the church? Nobody talked to me. Nobody phoned me. Didn't like the messages. They made changes I didn't like. It's me, 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 me. It's all about me. It's all about get. And if I don't get, and I don't get fed, and they don't do what I want, I'm gone. Why? Because I went there to get. It's about me. And by the way, I'm not saying here that it's illegitimate to ever leave a church. There are legitimate reasons to leave a church. You know, the leaders aren't listening to God. You know, they're false teaching. The Spirit of God just isn't there anymore. The place is just dead. Nobody's following the Lord. And there just comes a place and you're just so hungry and you want to meet with the Spirit and you go to a place where the Spirit is. I'm not saying there's never a reason to leave a church. Okay? Spiritual abuse. There's, there's, there's legitimate reasons. Okay? But so many of the reasons of why people switch churches today has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the fact that we come to church thinking it's like Disney World, thinking it's some kind of spiritual spa where I go to get massaged and doted on and it's all about me and, and help me and make me feel good about myself. And then we wonder, why isn't Jesus speaking to me when I go to church? And Jesus says, I didn't put you into church for what you could get. I sent you there to give. He didn't put Joseph in a Potiphar's. He didn't give Joseph success in Potiphar's house because he wanted Joseph to have more fun in life. He didn't give Joseph success in the prison so he got free cigarettes or something, okay? He didn't put you in this church so you could get, so you could feel good about yourself. Yeah, there's great side benefits of being part of a church and fellowship and people pray for you and people care for you and all sorts of stuff. There's great side benefits. But Jesus didn't put you here for what you, you could get. It's a radically new mindset. I go to give. I go to make the life of my spiritual leaders that God has raised up easier and better. And I go there to take care of the people who are all around me and make their lives easier and better and, and more loved and more cared for. We go to give. It's a radically different mindset. So I just need a breath here. So I want you to turn to four people and say it's not about me.
Yeah, I mean it. Let's do it. Just lie. Some of you are lying because it is about you. That's okay. I'm giving you permission to lie. It's not about me. Four people. You can tell. It's not about me. It's not about me. I'm not here for me. Okay? So you still think I'm joking. So I'm going to give you one more thing to do. Oh, all this talking in the service. I want to tell four people. Church is where I go to serve, not just get. Do it. Church is where I go to serve, not just get. You will get some stuff, but I go there to serve. I don't just go there to get. Again, most of you guys know it. I say this to you so you can go and tell your family from other churches. Anyway, back to Joseph. So that's, you want to know, pride. I told you before, pride is a sneaky sin. It's a sneaky sin. I'm showing you things of how the opposite of pride looks like so you cannot fall into that sneaky sin. When you begin to live this way, you're living a life that God doesn't oppose. You're living a life that God is very pleased with. And we see that throughout the Joseph, the Joseph story. Even when, he, even when God lets him suffer, God's favor is on Joseph in the suffering. You begin to live like this, God's favor will be with you everywhere you go. I'm not saying it's all going to be good. You know I'm not saying that. I'm not saying God's favor is going to be on you and you're going to get rich. I'm saying you live like this, God's favor will be with you even when you're suffering. This is the kind of life that God favors. This is the kind of life where God is on the sidelines going, I love that one. And he's saying to all his angels, look at that one right there. So anyway, back to Joseph, chapter 40, verse 4. They continued for some time in custody, because I want to show you one more thing, the opposite of pride. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. So they both have a dream, right? Verse 6, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? In other words, you know, what, what's bugging you, right? And again, you just think of what Joseph's going through and the disappointment he's been in stuff, and he, but he's not self-focused. Most of us, when we suffer, our suffering is an excuse to think about me. Our success is an excuse to think about me, and our suffering is a is a is an excuse to think about me. That's just how we human beings are. He's suffering in the prison. Instead of just worry about him, I, look at this. He sees two prisoners, and they're downcast. He's like, what's the matter with you guys? What's up? And that's just, un, you know, the beauty of his character here is so awesome. We go on verse 8. They said to him, we have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. And that's the last verse we're going to do in this message, because this, this is just so amazing right here. You see how ironic this is? These two guys get dreams in prison, okay? And the first thing Joseph wants to do is help them know what their dreams mean. Has, is, is any of you catching the irony of this in the story? Like, let's go back to the beginning. Why is Joseph in this prison in the beginning? In, in the first place. Why is he there? I'll tell you why. Because he had a dream. He had a dream from God, and as a direct result of that dream, if he hadn't had the dream, his brothers probably don't sell him into slavery. Because as a direct result of him having a dream from God, his brothers sell him into slavery, and that's why he's in prison today. He had a dream that didn't work out for him. Okay? He had a dream, and it's shattered in pieces all over his cell floor. And yet here he is. He's the guy with the shattered dreams. If anybody should be bitter about dreams, it's Joseph. And yet he hears two people have dreams and the guy with the shattered dreams says, I want to help tell you what yours are all about. I want, I want to help you see what God's doing in your life. Now you are seeing, we are looking here at a depth of beauty in the human heart. And again, this comes from the Spirit of God. It didn't come from Joseph because he's superhuman. I want you to recognize that throughout this. I'm telling you characteristics of what we should all yearn for, but you don't get them except by walking with Jesus because this is Jesus' heart. He's the one with the shattered dreams, and now he says, I'm going to help you. I, I want to see your dreams come true. I'm going to help you tell your dreams. I'm going to help you interpret what they are. Please tell them to me. You know what's something I know about being a human being since I am one? One of the hardest things to do for a human being is cheer for another human being when they're getting something that you wanted and can't have. Isn't that true? That, I, I, that is one of the hardest things for us. Because our hearts are dark and twisted inside. And when we're suffering, one of the hardest things to do is cheer for someone who's not. For example, you might be here today, and you're a parent, and you've got kids who have rebelled or whatever. 
And isn't it true that when your kids are rebelling, it's one of the hardest things to cheer for someone whose kids are just all being good all the time, isn't it? I remember hearing my parents say once, as I had a couple siblings who, who for a few years went, you know, went crazy and rebelled and did some bad stuff. And I remember hearing my, I think it was my mom told me once, but she said uh, that her and dad actually had a discussion consciously at one point, and they said, we're, we're going cheer- to be happy for, for parents whose kids don't do this. And they made a conscious decision. Why did they make a conscious decision? Because that doesn't come naturally. Or you might be here today, you might be one of those, one of those couples and you, you've always wanted to have a baby. And you can't have a baby for whatever reason, right? That's one of the hardest things to go through, one of the biggest disappointments people go through in this lifetime. It's true. And isn't it true? Isn't it true when you, you want to have a baby more than anything? And isn't it true? One of the hardest things for you to do is when all your friends around you are having babies, doesn't that just gut you on the inside? It's true. Or you're single and all your friends are getting married. Whatever it is, right? As human beings, we all empathize with that one. We know what that's like. There is nothing harder than cheering for others when they're getting blessed with the one that you want. You can't have it. Yet, what do we find Joseph doing in this prison? He had a dream. His dream has not come true. In fact, his dream has caused him nothing but trouble for many, many years. Two people have a dream. The first thing he wants to do is, please tell me your dreams. There is a beauty of heart there, an example of the opposite of pride that is absolutely heavenly because part of living in the opposite of pride means you cheer for others even when you're suffering. This is heavenly. What Joseph is living here is absolutely heavenly. Can you imagine having that sort of a response in your suffering? That's heaven. He's got heaven on the insides is what he has. Instead of being eaten up by jealousy and bitterness and envy, the things that eat us up when we're suffering and other people are being blessed, we get eaten up by these things and they make us sick inside. Joseph is able to cheer for somebody else and still want to be able to help them. That's heaven. And when you get heaven on your insides like that, you know what starts to happen? You're bringing heaven with you everywhere you go. It's the best thing ever because heaven is no longer dependent on, you know, my circumstances. Joseph just brought heaven to slavery. He brought heaven into prison. He brought heaven with him everywhere he went because he had the Spirit of God inside of him and he could not be weighed down with bitterness and jealousy and envy and those things. That is heavenly. So I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. But you can't do anything, you can't do any of this without Jesus. This comes from Jesus' heart. You have to have Jesus to be like this. You have to walk with him. And we're going to sing a song in just a moment. But I'm going to give you a challenge, and I know some of you will complain because you can't write it down fast enough. I'm going to email it out to you. I'm going to put it on the website. We're going to start doing that with these challenges. I've worked it out with the guys, okay? And some of you with a cell phone, you can take a picture now anyway, whatever, okay? But I, I would like you to go and pray about this because this is not, this is too big a thing for you just to hear in a message and then you just leave it. This is something you have to take back to God and you have to sit with him and listen to him and spend time with him and say, Lord, make this a reality in my life. And so I have two challenges for you this week. One is make two lists. A list of the leaders in your life, church, family, work, and a list of the people who are under your leadership. And ask God to begin to show you practical steps you can take to serve them and put their interests above your own. You start to take steps of obedience like this relying on the Holy Spirit, and Jesus begins to change your heart. And the second thing is, ask God to show you any areas in your life where you are unable to cheer for others when they are blessed. Ask God. Just write it down. Ask God to show you any areas in your life where you are unable to cheer for other people when they are blessed. Then you give that sorrow and hurt to God. You begin to pray and you say, Lord, I'm hurting. That's why I do this. And then you begin to pray blessings for those people in that specific area. And you do this naturally until it becomes a joy. Or you do this regularly until it becomes a joy. I just want to pray for you. I want you to just stand and I want to just pray for you. Jesus, the character traits we talked about here today, this humility, this heavenly humility, this heavenly other-centeredness. Jesus, on a corporate level, if we ever catch this, oh, this church, wow, what a place, what a family this will be. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to work in our hearts. There's so much hurt. There's so much woundedness. I pray that this week, as we begin to listen to you, Jesus, that you're going to speak and touch us on the insides 
and give us a sense, because this has to come from your spirit, a sense of gratitude to recognize how much of our lives is totally dependent on you. And then a sense of others-centeredness, Jesus, where we begin to live for others instead of ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.